The Pope is said to have slept well and got up and walked. He had breakfast and read several newspapers. As long as there are no complications, Pope Francis is expected to stay in the hospital for a total of seven days. The father of an 11-year-old boy who died after a raft on an amusement park ride in Iowa overturned says his son and other family members were trapped in their seatbelts. David Jaramillo tells ABC he feels like Adventureland robbed him of his baby. Another child is in critical condition. S&P futures are down one. Dow futures off 14. This is CBS News. CBS News Radio is your home for breaking news. With our team of reporters around the country and the world, we give you the coverage you can trust. Cooking with all things fresh. Sponsored by Bank of America. How do you peel your garlic? Here's Rachel with her trusted method. Take the ball, you knock it. The cloves fall apart. Bounce on one and the skin comes off. Take off any little bits that look a little squishy. Brought to you by the Bank of America Customized Cash Rewards Credit Card. You can earn 3% cash back on online shopping, making the essentials even more rewarding. Copyright 2021 Bank of America Corporation. Hi, car needs a tune-up. Getting ready to finally hit the open road. A road trip, huh? Got a Febreze car vent clip in there. Febreze car vent clip? Oh, yeah. Can't have a road trip without Febreze. Freshens your ride for up to 30 days. Do I pay for installation? Nah, it's easy. Watch, you just clip it in and... <sighs> That's fresh. Your Febreze car vent clip is ready to go. Thanks for the car vent clip. Send me a postcard. The boss's daughter is headed to Tokyo. Jessica Springsteen will hit the world stage after snagging a spot on the U.S. Olympic equestrian team. The 29-year-old will be jumping horses. She served as an alternate at the 2012 London Summer Games, but failed to make the team in 2016. She'll head to Tokyo with the team again later this month. The legendary rock star's daughter has been riding horses at the family's farm in New Jersey since she was four. She's now ranked number three on the U.S. rider list and 27th in the world. Monica Ricks, CBS News. If you're worried about that frozen chicken recall, the Department of Agriculture is posting the stores that sold it. They include Walmart, Publix, HEB, and Wegmans. Affected products were also used at Jet's Pizza, Casey's General Store, Marco's Pizza, and Little Caesars. Eight and a half million pounds have been voluntarily pulled because of possible listeria contamination. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. Oil drilling investments involve a high degree of risk and are only suitable for SEC-accredited investors. Attention high net worth investors. Oil and gas investments have always been an ideal tax advantage and have been a way to invest and take a 100% write-off. The new administration is threatening to take this away. Invest in domestic oil drilling for a full tax credit this year. When you invest in oil, you get a 100% tax write-off. The OPEC cuts, cancellation of the pipeline, and pent-up demand from the pandemic has created the perfect storm for oil prices to shoot upwards. Analysts are predicting it could go over $100. Opportunity is knocking. Support domestic U.S. oil drilling and production and make your patriotic investment in oil and get a complete 100% tax deduction write-off. Call Encore Energy at 800-287-6691. That's 800-287-6691. 800-287-6691. That's 800-287-6691. Hello, my name is Kevin Tidd. 
My wife Carrie and I are the owners of the pharmacy on Stimson Avenue. For over half a century, we have been feeding the Athens community and providing customer service that is above and beyond your expectations. It has been our lifelong dream to run our own health and wellness store, and we enjoy doing so every day. Just like how we enjoy promoting our lifestyle on WATH and WXTQ Radio. Radio advertising has worked for us, especially in these trying times, and it can work for you and your business as well. Take it from us, Kevin and Carrie from the pharmacy. I'm John. You may know me as a commercial lender, but I'm also a craftsman and a dog dad. At Park National Bank, we're more than our job titles, and you're more than an account number. You get personal attention and direct access to a caring, compassionate banker who respects and responds to your needs and goals. Find John or a banker near you at parknationalbank.com. Park National Bank, where you mean more. Member FDIC, parknationalbank.com. What in the world is going on now? Find out every weekday at 8 a.m. and 7 p.m. on the World News Roundup from CBS News Radio and on Classic Hits 970 and 97.1 FM WATH. You good? Anything you want to talk about? Here if you need me. Just want to check in. Appreciate you. Everyone feels less than okay sometimes. They may not want your advice but they may welcome your ear. Be present is a simple but powerful way to be there for others, especially now when many are separated. Help teens and young adults find their power, conquer the difficult times, and get to a better tomorrow. Be present, Ohio. Sponsored by the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation and aired in cooperation with the OAB and this station. At Ohio Health, we'd like to remind you that the health issues you faced before the pandemic haven't just gone away. That cancer screening you needed well, you still need it. Your bad knee's not going to replace itself. And when life as you know it stopped, your medical needs didn't. It's time to take back your health safely. And just like always, Ohio Health is here to help you do it. Visit OhioHealth.com to find out more. Hi, I'm Kim. And this is Ruth. Please join us every Wednesday morning on 970 WATH to make it happen. It's the Kim and Ruth Show. It's not the Kim and Ruth Show. show. It's really, I don't know. (laughs) Tune in to Make It Happen with Kim and Ruth every Wednesday morning at 10.06. And we'll spend time talking about health and wellness topics. And all aspects of healthy living. But we know that you're the real expert in your health, so let us help you make it happen. Wednesday morning on 970 WATH to Make It Happen. In our 71st year of service to Southeast Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. WATH FM. Ah, yes, it's the uh, Party Line program, and um, seems odd having it on a Tuesday like this and feeling like it's the start of the week, but that's the way holidays work out. Hope everybody had a pleasant uh, 4th of July and the official day afterwards as well. Hey, we got a special edition. It's all about energy. And now with things loosening up, we're all giving thoughts to, like, vacations and trips and seeing family members we haven't seen. And the cost of gasoline is on our mind. And so joining us today is uh, someone who I just learned is has a local connection. He was raised in Gallipolis, but he's been 
a presidential advisor to Nixon and Ford and uh, all, all sorts of, right on up to uh, the current president. Jay Hakes is his name, and uh, his, his specialty is energy. That's right, energy. Good morning, Jay. Uh, good morning, Dave. Good to talk to you. Yes, sir. And um, I, I, I've seen your picture a couple times, and it strikes me that somewhere back in my background, I may have met you um, with the Nixon administration. But, well, uh, I didn't actually work for Nixon. I, I'm not quite that old. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, I did uh, uh, work for three different presidents, and um, I uh, spend a lot of my life going to presidential libraries and going through the papers, and uh, I've listened to all the tapes where Richard Nixon talks about energy. So I feel like I – and, of course, I've, I've met a lot of the presidents and their families over the years, even sure. the ones I didn't work for. Sure. But uh, I feel like I get to know them because I'm reading all their private memos and uh, I'm listening to their tapes in the case of Nixon. So it's it's a fun uh, doing research for my books uh, is uh, something that I really enjoy doing. Well, so tell me now, where where do you choose to reside? I now live in New Orleans, uh, across the street from my grandchildren. Yeah. So, well, um, how cool is that? I, yeah, I gave up full-time employment a few years back. Uh, my last job, I was director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library in um, Atlanta, uh-huh. and uh, my daughter was living here, and she wanted a uh, free babysitter, so we, <laughs> we we moved here. And it's nice for me because I, I get to eat the good food in New Orleans, and uh, I then spend my days in my office uh, writing. It's it is a great town, but I, I guess I'm wondering: Have you lived in Washington? Oh yeah, I've lived in. I moved there um, in 1977 to work in the Carter administration. Uh, when I uh, in the 90s, I was an assistant secretary of energy, um, and then uh, after the BP oil spill um, uh, disaster, I moved up for a, another seven months to work on the report. Um, on the causes of and the solutions to that problem. So I've moved up there three times, but uh, when I finish whatever project I'm working uh, uh, on, I, I return to the real world outside right. of Washington. Well, I I had a place up on Route 29. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, half, beautiful. Halfway yeah. up to Baltimore. Well, yeah. listen, um, you are, uh, by uh, any number of accounts, uh, an expert in energy and energy um you know it seems to me like maybe there's no topic discussed more openly than um the cost of energy it can be electrical energy it can be um, natural gas it can be uh, petrol for our cars and diesel for our trucks and, and and you know we always complain about the cost of energy and um, so well, why why is that is it just because you got to complain about something or is it is it really something we could ever change yeah i mean that's a good question and uh you know i think in the case of gasoline uh you're talking about really the only product that we use that is required that you have a big sign uh in front of the store 
saying what the price today is. Um, w- w- you know, if you're buying uh, a bag of onions or, uh, you know, a steak or something like that at the grocery store, uh, the price isn't uh, sitting, you know, on a sign in front of the store usually. Right. So that's part of it. Um, I think also in this country we always sort of assume that gasoline will just comes out of the ground, you know, and so there's not much cost to producing it, so it ought to be real cheap. But if you look at it historically in control for inflation, our energy costs really haven't gone up any more than anything else. So uh, I think it's just kind of a target. Um, you know, today to produce gasoline, sometimes we have to dig a hole in the ground that's 5,000 feet deep. Um, so that costs a little bit more, but um, we also today have a better uh, seismology so we can sort of look under the ground so we don't produce as many dry wells as we used to. We generally hit what we're looking for. So there's some things that increase the cost, some uh, things that decrease the cost. And, uh, you know, at times uh, gasoline is cheaper than bottled water. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that in general um, it, uh, it it's a, uh, you know, something that people should be complaining about. Now, it does change a lot. Uh, so, you know, last year we had real low prices. Right now we've got pretty high prices. Mm-hmm. Do you um, – h- how is it that uh, of all the topics you might have followed, uh, this became your focus? That is uh, uh, another good question. I – Started, I started my uh, life as an academic, and um, I, I was a tenured professor, and I taught um, uh, not energy. I taught uh, 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 comparative governments with a specialist in Africa. I traveled to Africa. I did my doctoral dissertation research in, in the country of Kenya. But when I went up to the Carter administration, I started off uh, at the Agency for International Development, which seemed to be logical. But... Um, uh, a good friend of mine was the chief of staff of the Secretary of, uh, of Interior, um, uh, Cecil Andrus, and that was the agency that oversaw um, oil drilling offshore. Uh, and I went over there to work. I uh, got a promotion to go over there, and that was the start of a long progression into energy. Uh, you know, it was kind of after the oil embargoes of the 1970s, and <clears throat> so we We'd sort of lived through those gasoline lines, so it was, it was an interesting topic. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I ended up focusing less on uh, on Africa and uh, and more on on energy. And then in the Clinton administration, I, I had been the, uh, the state energy director of Florida, and so I was picked to head the Energy Information Administration, uh, which is the main data and analytic arm of the U.S. government. And there you're looking into everything related to energy. And uh, during that time, I um, testified, I think, 25 times before Congress on all sorts of topics. Um, usually I'd get invited up more often if the price of gasoline had just gone up. Uh, there was a time in the late 90s where the price of gasoline uh, went up to $1.27, which at the time was considered uh, quite high. And uh, so I was called over to explain that and uh, what was happening in the Middle East. Uh, that, that's another great thing about energy is you, uh, I've spent a lot of time now in recent years going over uh, previously classified correspondence with Saudi Arabia, Iran, 
countries like that because that's part of the big energy picture. Now, one of the things that uh, has particularly <clears throat> made you different from some of your counterparts is writing books. And um, you've, you've had two particularly well-known books, one recent, one some time ago, and it, they both deal with energy and producing fuels. And, and, you know, here it is. We have a nation, of course, but there's hundreds of other nations about the world. And much of the product comes from these other places. How can we have any control over the cost of fuel if it's not a product readily available through our own sh borders? You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that was really the topic of my first book. The first book came out in 2008, which is, is kind of from now a long time ago. But uh, at that time, we, we had been... Uh, importing 60% of our oil and so we were really at the mercy of um, of OPEC and the Middle Eastern producers uh, I argued that that was not a tolerable situation either from an economic standpoint or from a national security standpoint and a lot of people said well Jay doesn't know what he's talking about that's impossible well now our net imports are about zero um, but we export some oil and we import some oil so today, when OPEC wants to bully us, uh, they can't do it very easily because we have domestic production. Plus, over the years, we have put in a, a stockpile of uh, crude oil, which most Americans don't know about, but it's quite a bit. Uh, so if we're being, uh, uh, as I say, bullied by these other nations, we can withdraw uh, crude oil from that uh, stockpile for, for a while uh, to get over the, the, the problem. So we're in pretty good shape today. Um, uh, OPEC uh, has tried to and, uh, increase its influence by making an alliance with Russia, which is another major oil producer. But on the other hand, um, the technology for oil drilling in this country has improved so much uh, that we've resumed our position as the world's largest producer of energy. Uh, th this is an amazing story because in 1970s our domestic production started to drop mm -hmm. and if it hadn't been for alaska it would drop even further but now uh, particularly in texas but in a lot of other places too uh we we can find the oil and uh, we're in a much stronger position now this crude element that we pull out of the ground does it replenish itself or is there a limitation uh, that's another good question. There are some people that believe that there may be some sort of uh, uh, creatures under the the uh, surface of the earth that uh, propagate themselves and turn into oil. Uh, I don't totally discount that, but because uh, we do seem to be able to find more. But generally, we find more in two different ways. One is we go deeper. Uh, it used to be the oil was right near the surface, um, and, and now we have to go down deeper. Or uh, some of it is trapped in rock that it's hard to get out. So 
basically, the way that works in uh, the modern world is we pump water down with some chemicals at a very high pressure and break up the rock to get to the oil. Is this what so is known it, as fracking? Yes, fracking. Uh, it you know fracking is short for hydrological fracturing, and uh, usually it's combined with what's called horizontal drilling. You you put a drill straight down, and then you take a 90-degree turn because you can get more oil out if you're coming from the side. Mm -hmm. So this um, this technology first became uh, commercially available in the late 1990s. I actually visited the first one of these wells that was commercially successful at a time that no one knew what the impact was going to be. And now it's, it's, it's the rage. So, uh, you know, there's kind of a race between oil being depleted and our technological ability to find what's there. And so far, technology is is winning. And uh, I argue this, not everybody agrees with me, but I think for the foreseeable future, we generally have more oil than we may need. Because if people are moving to electric cars, which is, I think, on the horizon, uh, the, then there won't be as big a demand for the oil. And um, so, uh, you know, we, we would have the capability to keep producing more, but we may not need to. Now, there is, um, in some communities, a lot of resistance to the concept of fracking. Why would that be? Well, I think that fracking needs to be uh, carefully regulated but I'm, I'm generally supportive of it in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania where there's been a real bounce back. Fracking can be used for both oil and for gas. So in um, uh, Pennsylvania now is one of the biggest gas producers in the country because of fracking. But fracking, if it's not regulated properly, uh, can contaminate water. Uh, if it's not regulated properly, it can create the risk of uh, earthquakes. And uh, it also um, uh, can uh, leak methane, which is uh, not something that you want. Um, so uh, state, generally, uh, fracking is regulated at the state level. So some states do a better job than others. So my, my argument is if people are concerned about it, they have a right to be concerned about it. But hopefully they wouldn't have to shut it down. What they would have to do is make sure that the people that are producing the oil and gas are following uh, best industry practices. Now, you mentioned the first book. The second book is uh, recently re released, right? Yes, um, Energy Crises, which is about the 70s. And so people might say, well, the 1970s, what, why would I be interested in that? Well, that was when we had the, the big uh, oil, the long gasoline lines mm -hmm. uh, after the Arab oil embargo in 1973. And then when the Shah of Iran was overthrown, there was another big bout of gasoline lines. And the, one of the reasons it's interesting to go back to that, and it makes it an interesting story, is now a lot of the materials have been declassified. Uh, normally, we don't get to listen in when uh, the United States government is having sensitive conversations with Saudi Arabia. Right. But after decades, uh, these papers become open. I was able to find the diaries of the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia 
at the University of South Carolina Library. Uh, and um, it gives all sorts of insights that you wouldn't have thought of, uh, of what kind of discussions were we having with Saudi Arabia during the oil embargo. Um, so I think it's an interesting story. You learn a lot about three presidents, Nixon, Ford, and Carter, and how they handled an issue. Uh, and you learn a lot about energy. Uh, you know, so many of the pr- things we talk about today, actually, the, the initial government research um, in uh, fracking, which we use today, was started when Ford and Carter were presidents. So mm-hmm. Uh, it, it gives a lot of insights on our current situation. Plus, it's just it's a lot of interesting people like Henry Kissinger and and these presidents and their advisors and and so I, I I tried to make it read like a novel. I don't know if I was successful at that, but I I do think it's an interesting story. I uh, worked some with Henry and um, uh, fascinating guy. Listen, um, it's this. Okay, so do you think the general American public has an accurate understanding of energy today? Uh, maybe not. Um, you, you know, I, one of the things I try to picture in the book is every one of these presidents, and, and, and also Henry Kissinger, uh, would remark privately, you know, I, I now have their private papers and mm-hmm. comments, the, how complicated energy was for them. <laughs> Uh, Kissinger, during the embargo, he, he kind of exploded at a State Department meeting. He says, you know, people come in here talking about a million barrels of oil. He says, I don't know what a barrel of oil means. He says, they might as well be talking about how many Coke bottles of oil. Uh, and uh, Carter, when he got his energy plan, uh, he told Secretary of, uh, uh, of Energy uh, Schlesinger, uh, you know, the public isn't going to understand this i i can't even understand it uh and and he was a nuclear engineer so uh it's a complicated subject um i do think that we are better off today that the energy information administration which i used to head we worked real hard at going onto the web once web browsers became available and trying to explain things in um, layman's terms. So you can go to that website. There's even a kid's page that tries to explain everything. But um, in energy, the, the people who are nuclear experts often don't understand oil drilling. The people that understand oil drilling don't understand how a nuclear plant works. So it's it's a tough subject, but it's it's a lot of fun because it's what makes our modern life possible. And it involves so many aspects of the economy and international relations. So, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Yeah, um, I try to keep pointing that out so that we don't judge the people uh, too harshly when we look back at them. But uh, if if you are looking back um, into the seventies, let's say, um, when so many energy concerns existed and decisions were made of this and that type. Did we make some errors? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the the worst one was made under Nixon, and he did it under um, pressure from a Democratic Congress, so it's not a, a partisan thing particularly. But he put in uh, wage and price controls, and when you put in price controls on energy, it, it gums up the system in ways that I detail in the book. Uh and then they also, when there was a shortage, they had the government allocate uh, oil supplies, you know, which states would get it and then 
who you know where it would be distributed and the government's just not very good at that mm-hmm. um uh, you know the the old companies actually can do it better <laughs> so that was the big mistake but what i try to point out was that there were also some good things like investments in uh, new technologies like solar energy and um, that sort of no, uh, Athens is Athens is uh, got several solar companies here that are uh, uh-huh. reaching out to multi multi state uh, projects. Um, you know the very nature of a campus community. You have lots of people who are looking at alternatives. Um, you know what I'm getting at. Now, it's just the nature of the community. Uh, Speak to some of those people about ideas that you think are kind of cool. And, 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 you know, how how do you treat your own home? (laughs) Right. Well, some universities are uh, putting in what are called microgrids, where they try to be kind of energy self-sufficient. Right. Uh, It it tends to be – it starts – you know, my brother used to be at – uh, Illinois Institute of Technology, and they were very early into this. Of course, they had a lot of engineers on their faculty, which, which helped. But uh, the the time for it used to be, you know, solar energy was kind of considered a hippie kind of thing. But now it's very um, uh, cost competitive because the the panels keep getting less expensive, mm-hmm. and they uh, get more efficient at capturing sunlight. And, and so you, it's intermittent power. So you have to have a system-wide approach where you have batteries to store um, um, the the power when the sun's shining and then you use that when it's not shining. So, uh, and there are other ways to store energy, not just batteries. So I, I think within university communities, now I think most people have, have switched to the LED light bulbs, which are super efficient if they haven't, if they're still using fluorescent lights or incandescent lights, they need to swap those out. Um, and and uh, you know, they keep improving the uh, efficiency of air conditioning and things like that that consume a lot of energy. So all of these are really good ideas. And uh, I, I think you, your question is well taken, that any community should be looking at its own energy use and what they can do to um, lessen the environmental impacts and uh, hopefully save themselves some money if they find you know, more efficient ways to uh, get access to energy. I came across a light bulb the other day that if there's a power failure it continues to stay on yeah science is a wonderful thing and um, uh, it'll last eight hours at full yeah. full intensity um, yeah. and that could be important I mean one of my know, hardware uh, store buddies showed it to me I couldn't believe it yeah yeah if I was a surgeon working in a hospital I'd sure want one of those uh, light bulbs yeah yeah yeah, I hadn't you know, the, the, the wave of the future um, is if you have an all-electric car, the size of that battery is about the size of a battery it would take to run your house for about four hours. So um, right now we don't pair electric cars with houses in most cases. But if you're looking 10 years down the road, mm. you can be using um, your house to repower your car at night when there's less demand for electricity and it's cheaper. And then when there's an interruption, if you've got a fully charged car or close to fully charged car in the driveway, you can then power your house for a while. So 
Uh, I think that's where we're heading. Uh, there'll be a little hiccups along the way as you move to new technologies, but um, like that all uh, light that stays on, uh, there's a lot of good things that come out of it. There's, um, you know, some people will have to adjust to the understanding that when you do replace your battery, it's going to be a thousand bucks, you know? Well, it's more than that right well, now. Well, you know what uh, I'm trying but, to say. But I've, you know, I've driven Prius hybrids for oh, 15 years, and I've never had one of the big batteries go out. Really? I, I mean, I, yeah. Well, that's remarkable. Now, in a hybrid car, there are two uh, batteries. It has a one battery uh, that does the starter and things like that, and. You know, if you leave your lights on overnight or something like that, I, I've had to replace those smaller ones, and those are maybe two or three hundred dollars. But the big ones are built to last. Uh, mm-hmm. They can recycle them. You know, obviously there's materials um, in a battery you just don't want to throw into a landfill. Uh, but uh, that, and they have pretty good warranties on them. So uh, that has uh, it, it's certainly an issue to keep an eye on. But mm-hmm. so far. Um, you know, hybrids have been on the road for, well, I drove the first hybrid produced in this country was the Honda Insight, and I drove that, that particular the number one car back around uh, 1998 or 99, and shortly after that, Toyota found out I had driven the Honda, so they they had just got off the boat, one of these Priuses uh, from Japan, and they said, you want to drive that? And I said, yeah, I'll drive that. So they, they've been around for a while. Um, and and they work pretty well. Uh, they're getting high customer satisfaction. Um, a Prius doesn't accelerate that great for someone that wants that. But the all-electric cars like the Tesla, they're, they're shoot right off the mark. Uh, oh, they're, yes. they're the fastest cars out there. So, um, it, you know, it's, it, it's interesting to watch this. I, I, I wish I was in the market for a car more often because it's so much fun to look at the new features. Well, you know, everybody, of course, has a bias. And uh, a couple of people I've talked to, or they just think the electric car doesn't make any sense. But um, they, they're they also old school. So I- anyway, nobody's right or wrong on these things. Um, what do you... What do you think is an area that is not being paid enough attention um, and, and that really, as a nation, we could improve? Well, I think that the ideas that, we're need, uh, that we need are, are out there and being discussed. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've testified two years ago before the Congressional um, Appropriations Committee, and they asked the same question: What what are we not working on uh, that we should be working on? And and my answer was: Your list is pretty good, but what we've lacked is sticking with things that work. You know, for instance, uh, at times in our history, we've increased the mileage efficiency standards for automobiles, but then we we stopped doing it for a couple decades, and then we start doing it again. If, if we had kept doing that over the period of time, um, we would be much better off. Uh, we'd have much better automobiles today than we have, even though the automobiles today are pretty good. Uh, solar energy, I think, is a huge alternative for us 
Um, uh, and we've made a lot of progress, but again, we, we do it off and on, so keep at it. Um, I think nuclear is an area that we need to rethink. I'm not uh, a big fan, and I haven't been since the mid-1980s, uh, of the big nuclear plants, 1,200-megawatt uh, plants. They're, they're too big to build. They get confused. Smaller plants, however, where they could mass-produce the parts rather than build each plant as kind of a thing in itself, Um those could be more economical, safer, um, and just make a lot more sense. And I, I was actually on a panel in the 1980s that recommend the industry uh, uh, move towards the smaller plants, and I thought they were going to do that. But uh, one of my, I think now— One of my concerns has been the uniqueness of each plant. Exactly. If, if a plant could be designed uh, by the engineers, and then built at multiple locations identically. So you have interchangeable parts. And uh, everything from the beefiest thing to the most common part. Um, I think the cost of each would come down significantly. It would be easier to maintain them because... If you have a failure of this part here in New Mexico, you just ship it down from Montana and vice versa. Um, you know, but as it is right now, each plan is kind of its own unique design. Yeah, someone once said uh, jokingly that we were just the opposite of the French. Uh, they, they had a hundred different kinds of um, cheeses and one nuclear plant design, and we were just the opposite. <laughs> Yeah. And so I'm I'm with you. I'm I I agree with what you're saying 100. percent I mean that to me, it's through mass production and interchangeability of parts um, uh, that you uh, reduce costs and make progress. And, and not only will they be cheaper, they'll be safer. But mm-hmm. you know, people get fixed in their views sometimes. And it's um, you know, I, I was arguing with a one of the nation's leading experts on nuclear plants, and he said, Jay, you don't understand economies of scale and i said well i think i do understand economies of scale but you don't understand what it takes to finance uh, uh, a, a 1200 megawatt plant and and then you know cost billions and billions of dollars so um that, that's an area and i you know if, if we're looking for a non-carbon source of electricity that would pair now the other thing is in france they build nuclear plants they can turn on and off and our nuclear plants, we assumed uh, when we started building them that they would run 24 hours a day. So, I mean, they can be shut down, but it's a it's a big pain in the neck. So uh, they don't work well with other plants like natural gas or wind because, because of that. So that's another design feature that you want. If we start building these smaller plants, we want an on and off switch <laughs> that, that uh, makes it blend better with the overall system. What is your favorite source? Just you. Personally. Well, I think so- solar is is yeah. um, in this country we have enough room for the panels, uh, and um, it has the least pollution. It's it's not zero pollution, um, but it has to be paired with storage. So mm-hmm. you know it's it's not that there's no perfect fuel. Uh, you know among the fossil fuels, 
uh, gas is the most efficient and least polluting. Um, and so I, my, my hope is that we would have a future that has wind and solar, small nuclear plants, and um, it's certainly technically possible, and I think it could be economical, to uh, take the carbon out of the waste stream of the uh, natural gas plants, and then you'd have a really, really cool system. Folks, I should have said a while back, uh, we did it at the beginning, but our guest today is Jay Hakes. He is a, a, a very high expert on U.S. energy policy. He's been involved with all sorts of different administrations, presidential administrations, energy commissions, and so on and so forth. Written two books, uh, both of which are very interesting just to the common reader. So um, you might might look it up. Um, but uh, how many years you've been doing this now? <laughs> Well, I I, uh, I got my Ph.D. in 1970. Uh, uh, that's when I started my uh, I got a uh, Duke University in North Carolina. There you go. And and so then I uh, started a career uh, teaching for seven years, and then I ended up 27 years in the federal government. I worked um, a good stint uh, for the good people of Florida. Um, I was um, worked for the governor there for six years, um, and uh, so it's been a, an interesting career. So I've had a chance to meet a lot of the most interesting people. I, I even met Henry Kissinger one time, very briefly. Uh, and, no, seriously, uh, I, I, I worked with him a little bit uh, back during yeah. uh, the Vietnam War. Yeah, well, he, he's certainly one of the most interesting people in um, American history. I. I in the book energy crises that he is the most uh, influential um, presidential aide in, in history uh, because when nixon got in the watergate problem he oh, he yes. he became physically impaired and so kissinger was having meetings about raising the nuclear alert and all sorts of things and acting as president and and wouldn't always even tell Nixon what he was doing so mm -hmm. and of course he his his picture was on the cover of Time magazine all the time which made Nixon kind of jealous but um you know certainly that uh, meeting from working him with him must have been uh, quite an experience well um I was at Sync Pack Commander in Chief Pacific which mm -hmm. was uh, Admiral McCain's father I'm sorry Admiral oh, McCain yeah. His son became the U.S. senator and also was a prisoner of war, and I had a lot to do with getting that all undone. But um, wow. anyway, it was fascinating, and Kissinger was a, a very classy guy. But I also, you know what? He had a great personality, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, listen, um, let's see here. Is there something along the way that you wish you could have achieved, but it just didn't work out? Well, I considered running for political office, but <laughs> I uh, always, uh, in a few cases when people said, you, you might want to do that, uh, here's an opportunity, I, I think I wisely uh, decided not to do that. I, I, I'd like to be able to... Um, look at a problem and say what I think about it. And when you get in 
elected office, sometimes it's hard to do that. Yes. Now, I've been an aide to senators and governors and presidents, and uh, I can write them briefing memos and privately tell them what I think, and then they may take my advice or they may not take my advice. But yes. I, uh, And when I was at the Energy Information Administration, that was a quasi-independent agency, so uh, the White House or even the Secretary of Energy couldn't tell us what to say. We We did our analysis and um, published it. So um, that's one fork in the road I never went down, but uh, I've I've certainly enjoyed the experiences I've had and uh, the people I've met and, you know, the chance to study something in depth like like energy, which uh, affects everybody's life. Now, but you've also been the director of the presidential library, Jimmy uh, Carter, to be exact. Um, Yeah. I think I'd be a little bored doing that, considering some of the other jobs you've had. Um, well, is that uh, unfair? It, yeah, it's 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 very interesting because one is I I met most of the uh, people you see on television mm-hmm. who uh, write about presidential history. You know, David McCullough, Michael Beschloss, uh, Dave Brinkley, right. John Meacham, those people, and I I, I met the top writers and, you know, Conan O'Brien and, and, uh, athletes, you know, Bill Walton was always one of my favorite, uh, uh, basketball players. And he, I gave him a tour of the library one time. So you're, you're meeting, uh, former presidential aides and, and, uh, we, we brought authors there all the time and, and off camera, you know, I can talk with them. Well, what did you really find out? And what do you think? And, and uh, we're going through all the papers. You know, there's millions of pages of paper there. So uh, it's a it's a real learning experience. Um, um, you know, it, it. We also in 2008 uh, redesigned the museum, and so all these presidential libraries have museums. And so you say, well, how can I tell this story about this president? in a way that kids would like it. So you put in interactive devices, and we have an 18-foot-tall day in the life of the president with different cameras showing what's doing. And mm-hmm. uh, So I really enjoyed working on that project. And I think even today, um, you know, it's the Carter's 75th wedding anniversary this week. Yes. Um, and a lot of the comments that even Carter were making were kind of taken from from the museum. And, and of course, I spent a lot of time talking with Jimmy and Rosalind about their views on things and how uh, they felt about it. And we were, you know, interacting all the time about the museum. So um, it's not a boring job. Oh, I I didn't mean to suggest that. It's just um, you've been so active in... um, Sending policy. Uh, yeah, it's a different it's a different view. I I find now you know I'm a, I'm a historian. I'm not involved. You know, you go through phases in life, and so now uh, I'm a historian. And you know, I still get at you know as I said, I still get invited to testify before congressional committees from time to time. Um, and I do write some op-ed pieces uh, that are a little different from my books, where I. Um, uh, get more involved in policy recommending. Uh, but, um, you know, more on uh, these days, I'm trying to tell a story, what happened, and hopefully people, whatever their 
political viewpoint would say, well, yeah, that's what happened. Well, let's, and people care. let's try a different approach. What we really haven't talked about is climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, are, you a, are you one who believes that climate change is occurring, and is it something we can do anything about? Um, all of that... Yeah. Um, uh, goes together with our energy requirements, right? Yes. We know that fossil fuels emit um, carbon dioxide um, when when they are combusted. Uh, we know that about half of that carbon dioxide ends up uh, in the atmosphere, and the other half ends up either in the oceans or in trees, basically, or plants. So th- that... Um, carbon that's in the atmosphere that's been added by humans is not that big uh, in volume because the um, um, the atmosphere is very large. But carbon is a very potent greenhouse gas, so it it traps heat. So basically, since the late 1970s, the scientists haven't totally agreed, but they they pretty much said if we double the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, the the Earth's temperature is going to go up two or three degrees centigrade. So mm-hmm. two degrees centigrade is about three point six Fahrenheit, and and that's and we can measure the carbon in the atmosphere. I don't think anybody questions those measurements. So so that warming is occurring, but it's not like every place in the Earth is warming at the same rate. So uh, near the polar areas it's warming faster. Um, in my state of Louisiana, it's not warming that much. Out west, uh, uh, it's warming a lot more than average. So we can see that happen. And um, it, some people say, well, you know, there's some benefits to warmer weather and there's some um, uh, bad things about it. But we, we sort of have built our civilization on the climate that we have. So if the good farmland moves from one part of the country to another, can people um, move there? <laughs> uh, maybe they can, maybe they can't. If, if a country uh, in Africa is hit uh, where the crops don't grow like they used to, do they then ha- want to m- migrate to some other country? So there, there's a lot of problems, and... We're making some progress, but if we have the ability to use solar and nuclear power um, and cut back on fossil fuels, it seems to me that that's an extremely good thing to do. And uh, we've kind of, as I said, the science on this has been pretty solid, I'd say, since the late 1970s. And if someone uh, doesn't believe that, um, my question would be, well, what part of it don't you believe? Do you believe that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is not coming from the combustion of fossil fuels. Uh, do you not believe that the greenhouse effect is creating a warming effect? Um, so, you know, I think it's pretty solid. It, it you know, back when uh, the scientists first posited that the uh, uh, earth revolved around the sun and the sun didn't revolve around the earth, it took about a generation for people to accept that that was the case, but yes, I, I think yes. the scientific evidence right now is pretty clear. So, Jay, let's say all of this stuff we just talked about 
did not come to pass, and instead you followed some other area of interest that intrigued you. What 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 might that have been? Well, when I was a kid, it was sports. You know, first I wanted to be a major league baseball player, and then I wanted to be a uh, you know a big uh, basketball player. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't good enough. Um, and um, you, you know, I I, I think uh, my interest in international relations is something that I've always valued. Um, and I could have specialized more in that. I, you know, I've traveled through China, for instance, lecturing about energy. In the course of that, I've met senior officials in the government and you know, sit around a table and try to figure out, uh, what's good for them, what's good for us, what's good for the world. Um, and so I enjoy that part of it too. So they're, they're, you know, I would say to kids when I'm talking to them, um, you don't so much go to school to learn as you go to school to learn how to learn, uh, because as life life is going to change, um, uh, the world is going to be different. Uh, you may not have the same job, you know, for 50 years, um, and so you're going to have to learn new skills as you go along. So, um, you know, I think that's been important for me. I've I've had to change change directions. You know, I uh, I always say that I left the tenured world of uh, of um, of academia to uh, the political world of government, where if your boss loses the election, you you've been fired by the uh, yes. by the electorate. So mm-hmm. so uh, fortunately, I've always had somebody that wanted to uh, hire me when um, the president or governor had served their two terms and was no longer eligible to uh, to continue so it, it's been uh, an exciting life and uh, kind of a loaded question but I'm going to go one more um, do you have a presidential favorite well I think Carter is the most underrated um, there's two in addition to my book which of course deals with Carter uh, Jonathan Alter wrote a, a good book came out end of last year and Kai Bird came out with one just the last month or two and of course, I know Carter. Uh, you know, I know him very well. I've eaten many meals with him and and talked with him about a lot of things. Um, in history, it's hard to say. I mean, I I have a very um, exquisite oil painting of Abraham Lincoln sitting in my um, living room, mm-hmm. and uh, I also have in my living room a signed. Um, picture by peter max of george washington <laughs> so i i kind of like all presidents uh in terms of i love to study them i mean kennedy had the beautiful rhetoric you know oh, he, he had yes. ted Sorensen helping him write the speeches but he didn't really have time to accomplish that much and um so it's 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 a mixed bag i i I keep saying, you know, based on my study of presidents, that we've never had a perfect president. And even the ones that we uh, think were the least perfect uh, had some redeeming value. So um, I, I think we have to look at these presidents as um, as what they really were. And but, you know, if you all spread di- that out and think of other countries and their presidents and so on, I, I would say that's true for them, too. You know, yeah. No, yeah. Nobody I, I, is perfect. 
Right. right. And, and nobody including... has done a perfectly good job. They've they've always there's some area they ignore and should not have. Well, never mind. I'll let you finish. We only have a minute and a half. But well, you know, to follow up on your point, you know, people ask me a lot of times to predict what the price of gasoline is. Yeah. And what I sometimes do is tell you what I was predicting a month ago, and maybe I got it right or maybe I got it wrong. <laughs> but I, I think people need to to know, you know, that there's no, you know, I'm an energy expert doesn't mean I'm always right. Yeah, Jay Hakes, it's been a pleasure. And um, uh, see, you live where? I now live in New Orleans. Oh, and, that's right. Uh, our re- that's right. Our restaurants are open, and uh, it's a pretty safe place to visit right now. And here as well, but it's taken a long time. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, stay safe, Jay, and thanks for joining us today, and maybe we'll uh, get together again down the road. It's been a great pleasure. Thank Good. you very much. Yes, sir. All right. Good morning, folks. Welcome. Uh, Party Line on the Air. I thought that was, um, that was a very worthwhile interview. Talking about energy and uh, yeah, and the different ways of producing it and and so on. We have um, let's see here, 79 degrees right now here on Columbus Road. A beautiful sunny day. Uh, in fact, as we look ahead, today's going to climb to 91, and again remain mostly sunny. Uh, I think our low tonight 69. And looking ahead, it's all in the 80s. Uh, there is a mention of rain showers on Thursday and on Friday. Folks, we're out of time. Uh, we'll have a free-for-all edition tomorrow, okay? In our 71st year of service to Southeast Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. W-A-T-H-F-N-S. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Tropical Storm Elsa is picking up strength as it swirls near the Florida Keys and gets ready to head north up the Gulf Coast. People who live there are making decisions. I think we're going to hunker down. We'll stay. Yeah, I think we'll be safe where we are. A hurricane watch has been posted north of Tampa Bay. Governor Ron DeSantis. Whether it's a hurricane, a strong tropical storm, those winds are what they are. They obviously have impact, but you're going to see a lot of rain dumped, particularly on the northern part of the state that is already saturated right now. Forecasters expect more than a foot when Elsa makes landfall early tomorrow. On the east coast of Florida, more bodies have just been pulled from the rubble of the condo collapse. Four more bringing the total to 32. Crews hope to make more headway now that the entire building has been demolished. CBS's Laura Podesta. The search and rescue effort at the Surfside Collapse has intensified now that the entire area has been made safer for crews. Surfside's mayor says the search and rescue effort is more active than ever. Heavy equipment is now fully engaged and able to navigate over the entire site where before they were very limited. The number of people hospitalized with COVID in the Missouri area has jumped almost 27 percent over the 4th of July weekend. Vaccination rates there are low. The Delta variant is spreading quickly. Ashley Kimberling Kassad with Cox Health. We've been kind of staying at a census of around 95 to 105 COVID patients for about two weeks now. When you compare the fact that on June 5th we were at 35 patients, it's a pretty extraordinary increase.
They don't take up much of the Earth's space, but new research shows cities make a massive contribution to pollution. CBS's Jim Crisula. Urban areas worldwide generally